My guest today is one of the most successful artists in rock and progressive music today. He was the man behind the band Porcupine Tree and is now a successful solo artist. I'd like to welcome Stephen Wilson. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm very good, Roy. How are you, sir? I'm great, man. Pleasure to meet you. I'm a big fan, and I'm, I'm thrilled to get a chance to speak with you today. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure. What can I tell you, sir? <laughs> so, listen, I, I want to start off just by talking about your overall career and how you know, you've know you been able to build uh, something that has allowed you to take a lot of risks and experiment musically and get involved in all these different things. And when you were starting out, was this sort of the plan you had set in mind to get to this type of point, or did you ever fall into having to write a hit single and, you know, that whole kind of rock star thing? You don't need me to tell you the music industry uh, as it is today bears very little resemblance to the music industry that I started out in. Right. And the music industry I started out in, which was in the early 90s, was still very much the, the traditional path is that you, you make some demos you convince a record company to sign you, you put some records out, you tour, et cetera, et cetera. And that, obviously, that was a route I did go down. I began, I mean, I began making um, music which became more, which was more from uh, DJ culture. I was using electronic music and, and trip-hop in this art, in this band called No Man that I had. And that was the first band that I ever got a record deal with. And so I thought that was going to be my ticket, you know. Right. I thought, okay, No Man, we're signed now. We're doing this very kind of modern, contemporary, you know, DJ culture-inspired pop music. Where this is going to be it. What I started around the same time, which was Porcupine Tree, which was just me in my bedroom make, having fun, you know, making this kind of retro, psychedelic space rock track. I thought that was going to be just a sideline. Now, life has a history of surprising you, and of course, what actually happened is that no man didn't manage to get, you know, to break through to the mainstream as we hoped, and. Porcupine Tree was the thing that took off. So, you know, I expected one thing to take off and it was the other thing that took off, the thing I least expected to take off. And and the lesson that that taught me really was that do your own thing. Right. You know, be selfish, be self-indulgent because actually that's what people want you to be. So that was a pretty important lesson to learn early on. Yeah, and, and I think that's sort of taken us to where you are now with following up on the success of a, of a great record, which was the, the Raven that refused to sing. And now you're coming up on the new album, Hand Cannot Erase, which comes out March 3rd here in the U.S. And I always like to ask, when you are getting ready for a release date, uh, what is that for an artist like yourself leading up to that? And, and actually the day of the album coming out, how do you look at that day and what, what does that take you through? Well, to be honest, release date these days is, is fairly meaningless because it's simply the day that people can actually buy the CD from Amazon or buy in the store, whatever. Most people, I think, by the time the album is released, have already got it. <laughs> uh, uh, or at least they've heard it, you know, right. uh, streaming or they, you know, they've seen videos or they've heard previews or, of course, they've managed to find it. The album's leaked and they managed to... So actually, the release date is not as significant as it was when I was buying records as a kid. You know, I couldn't I couldn't hear anything literally until the day the album was in the store, and I saved up my money to buy. So I think again that that's changed since I started, and it isn't as meaningless, meaningful as it was. What's more significant for me is the start of the tour which starts about a week later, starts in the, on the 12th of March. Now, that, that's going to be the, you know, the, the really big day, because really, until the first time I walk out in front of an audience to play a new show, 
I really don't know whether it's going to click or not, you know. So that that's a more important day in my mind. Do you get more excited about the touring part or, or the studio part these days? I, I get excited about the whole process because to me it is a, it is like a, a cycle. It's like almost like a season cycle. You know, I spend, I don't know, however many months in the studio in complete isolation writing and demoing this, the songs. And then I go into a second cycle, which is I work with my band, and so it's a little bit more communal and a bit more togetherness, and we work on the album together. And then I go to a third cycle, which is I start talking about the record and promoting it as I am now. So I'm meeting other people like yourself, like your good self every day. And then finally, the fourth season is suddenly I'm, I'm presenting this music to hundreds of people every night, thousands of people every night. Right. And then I go right back to the beginning again. And I go right, you know, from playing to thousands of people every night, I go right back to just me and my studio all on my own. And I like that. I like that constant changing. I think if I was just doing one of those things all the time, it, it would start to, you know, get a bit wearing. But I like the fact that, I love the fact that I've been in the studio for the last year, and I love the fact that I'm about to go on tour for the next year. That, that's what I like. Very cool. The new album, how long did it take you to start it, for, you know, following the, the last album? When did you decide to work on it? And was it the story that sort of triggered you starting an album, or you were, were you in the process of, of looking for what to write? I actually started writing new music halfway through the last tour because I wanted... The thing is, we do two... We, you know, usually in an album cycle, we do more than one tour of, of Europe and usually more than one tour of America. So sometimes you're going back to the same cities that you were in only six months before. So I've always tried, and I've done this with my solo tours and I used to do it with, with, my, with my bands too, always tried to have something new to play the second time around so actually I started working on new music in the summer of 2013 during the, the break if you like between the two different halves of the Raven that refused to sing tour uh, so I was kind of forcing myself to come up with new music and the story at that time um, I think was secondary um, it was only when I came to start working on the album properly early last year that I, that I started to coalesce all the sort of elements and ideas I had for the concept together. Right. The, the story being about a, a lady named Joyce Carol Vincent, who was found uh, after a few years being dead in her apartment, right? And um, right. when I was doing some, some research on it myself, one thing that was, was always on my mind was how did no one notice with her needing to pay rent or, or the bills and all that kind of stuff. But what I, I read that was interesting, you tell me if that's true, is a lot of her stuff was on auto automatic payments, so no one really paid attention. Yes, and I think you know this is this is where the whole uh, crux of the matter for me is because if you if you really want to disappear uh, in the twenty first century, I think it's a lot easier than you might imagine. Yeah, um, and particularly if you want to disappear, I think if you go and live in the heart of a major metropolitan city like london it's actually remarkably easy to disappear if as you say your bills payments are being taken care of and you're not you know keeping in touch with your friends and family i think there's something particularly about living in the heart of a city that makes people almost paranoid about knowing too much about the people they live next door to and i speak from experience i lived in london for for 20 years or so and i very rarely got to know anything about the people that lived next door to me or, or you know or in the same area as me um 
as soon as I moved out of the city, and I only moved about 20 miles north of London mm-hmm. a few years ago, within a week I knew everyone in my street, I knew my postman, I knew my local policeman, and I think there's something about the city that almost encourages people to, you know, kind of disconnect from the people around them, almost forcing themselves not to not to see, you know. And so it didn't completely surprise me, this story, horrific though it was. Yeah. One of the, the things that you've added as a, as a sort of conceptual element to it is the the, the blog, which is about the, the character in the album, and, and the, uh, apparently the album has a lot of extra pieces of, of articles and things. So tell me about the, uh, the whole uh, sort of concept around just not just the music, but everything that comes with it. Well, for me, um, you know, making music was always somehow connected in my mind to my three loves, which were growing up, my three loves were music, of course, cinema, and literature. And I was kind of discovering all those three things simultaneously. And so for me, it was really a question of which one am I going to, you know, pursue. And I pursued music, obviously. But cinema and writing and filmmaking were always things that, in a sense, uh, were just as important to me. So you kind of see throughout most of my projects, certainly the, the solo album projects, there's always been an equal emphasis on presentation uh, packaging, artwork, writing, when that's been applicable, as it, as it is here and as it was on the Raven album. And also the visuals, the films, you know, the artwork, the way the website is presented, the way the live show is presented. And I guess for me, that's because I'm more interested in um, being a multimedia artist rather than a specifically a musician. And that's partly because of the stuff I grew up with. I grew up listening to conceptual rock music. Right. The packaging was important. The story was important. Um, so that's really down to my roots, I guess. The single, is it officially a single, Hand Cannot Erase? Is that is that the one that is sort of uh, the lead track? I've seen that on iTunes. No, not really. Um, it, it's, it's the song that the people that are looking after radio decided they wanted to go to radio with. But, for example, there's a video going to be coming out this week, which is of a different song, and it's, it's the song called Perfect Life. Okay. So the video that we're releasing this week will be for for a different song. I think the notion of single doesn't, you know, doesn't really exist anymore anyway. No, not Certainly really, not. Yeah. No. No. And in my world, you know, it's irrelevant anyway because you take any you take any piece out of an album like this and out of context, it doesn't really make much sense to me. Um it's conceived as a 65-minute con- musical continuum, so it's always a bit unfortunate when you have to present something out of context but of course i you know i still hope that radio play will come and so that was certainly the most obvious one to go to radio with well perfect life is actually one of the more i guess not uh mainstream songs on the album right with the uh sort of dialogue beforehand and everything so that that really follows in sort of the the way you go with some singles because even on the last album you, i think the first video was was the title track and um certainly yeah. not the common way most artists would go well yes i mean absolutely i, I you know i just really am not interested in, in that world you know and there were times in my career when i was persuaded but this comes back to your very first question actually there were times in my career when I was persuaded to do things I felt uncomfortable with uh, because it was the I was told it was the way you were supposed to do things, you know. So you go you go down a certain route which is more to do with with um, 
courting, you know, the mainstream media. And I always felt very uncomfortable about that. And one of the things I've been able to do in my solo career is really just ignore all that bullshit and, and just do what what kind of felt right instinctively. And Perfect Life was a very cinematic track. It was one I had a very strong idea in my mind for how it would look visually. And it's a beautiful, beautiful video. I hope you like it when you see it. The other thing that is uh, amazing with your solo projects and continuing from the last album to this one is is the group of musicians you have with you, which are Guthrie and, and Marco. I mean, these are some of the best musicians in the world. So, you know, does that make it easier to work on, on these types of things? I imagine they, they catch on to the music pretty quick and, and it must be uh, incredible to work with. Well, I mean, it, I don't think it makes it easier to make music because music is, is really about the writing for me that's the, that's the hard part coming up with the material but it's certainly more inspiring you know to be able to work with world class musicians and I think you if you're open as I am always open to ideas and contributions from those kind of people then they can surprise you with stuff that, that you know wasn't what you planned it wasn't what you expected but it, it's fantastic and it's nice to be you know um, in a position where you can also be inspired and surprised by by the music even if you've been the writer of that music so i think you know the, one of the greatest gifts for me about my solo career is being able to work with these world-class musicians to bring in different musicians change i mean i have two different guitar players on this album guthrie is on about half the record dave gregory is on a few tracks and i play some myself so that's something you couldn't do in a band context you can't you can't turn to your guitar player in the band and say you know what I don't want you on this track you can't do that in a band right so it, that that whole kind of political issue doesn't apply uh, in a in a solo project like this which has been fantastic for me I wanted to uh, if if we have a, a couple minutes left just uh, talk about the the last album the Raven because that was such a a, a great record and and got so many awards and and accolades and um, was was my favorite album of the year that 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 year when you were putting that album together it's it sort of seemed to culminate in all the this the music that you had done in the past at least for me um, did you realize how special it was and and were you surprised at all by the response. Well, you know, I wouldn't release an album unless I felt that way about it. So I think you can you, you can assume that I I was very proud of it. But I'm proud of all my records. I wouldn't I wouldn't release them unless I was, you know. So yes, I was very proud of it. What I was surprised by is how well that particular album was received because actually it was quite a willfully uncommercial record to release. And it was the closest I'd come in my solo career to making a generic record. And by that, I mean it was very clearly in a particular genre, which is not something I like to do very often. But that was obviously very much a love letter to my, you know, my love of early 70s uh, progressive and progressive jazz music. And in that sense, I was surprised how much not only the people that already like that kind of music dug it, but also people that I didn't expect to really, you know, to connect with that album also really got into it. And that, that did, I have to say, that did surprise me. I mean, it became my best-selling record, and I certainly didn't expect that. 
in the U.S., the you know your kind of music, uh, generally speaking, uh, by by any artist doing this kind of music, has a hard time getting a mass audience. But you know, somehow, even with with Porcupine Tree and through your solo records, you've you've really been able to to uh, capture that fan base here. You know, what do you attribute that to, and and do you see differences in U.S. audiences versus the rest of the world? I think maybe maybe the rest of the world seems more accepting to. Uh, experimental music and rock music and stuff than it is sort of here in the States these days. Yeah, I was talking about it earlier with my manager. The US does seem to be the most resistant to um, music that is not generic or that is not um, ma- you know, easily marketable to a mainstream audience. I, I really wonder why that is because, I mean, you know, obviously, historically speaking, America has, has really loved a lot of experimental music, particularly from Europe. Um, to answer the first part of your question, um, I think the reason that my audience is relatively large is because it actually is not centered around a particular genre. So this comes back to my previous answer. If you come to one of my shows, you'll see guys wearing T-shirts of heavy metal bands. You'll see guys wearing Radiohead and Flaming Lips T-shirts. And you'll see guys wearing you know, Pink Floyd T-shirts. And I think that's the secret. I never said I played a particular kind of music. Right. And I've been resistant. I've been resistant to being categorized, even though I, of course, can acknowledge that my music is in the tradition of the great conceptual rock bands. Of course it is. I'd be stupid to deny that. But at the same time, my music has got, as indeed we, you know, we discussed with this album, has got pop songs, has got electronic music on it, has got death metal riffing on it, and has got long, more progressively orientated pieces too. And I've never said I play a particular genre of music. And I think that's the mistake that some people make, is they align themselves too much with the so-called progressive rock audience, which does have, you know, a cutoff point. You, right. you can't reach, um, you know, you can't reach a massive audience if you're just going to preach to those kind of people. as you are. So I've... I've always sort of taken a much more sort of wide, wider sort of view on my potential audience. And I've tried not to align myself with, with any particular genre. And I think that's one of the reasons why the audience is a bit more, you know, diverse in that sense. That, that makes sense. Um, you know, I just want to say that, uh, you know, like 15 years ago, I think it was the In Absentia tour that you did uh, here in the States. I'd never heard of porcupine tree and someone suggested I, I check you guys out and this was before itunes and i think i f- was able to find like one song somewhere and it was the sound of music which blew me away um and coincidentally <clears throat> like a week later you guys were playing in tampa so i went to the show and it was at a small club i don't know if you remember that was Basically, my introduction yeah. that was my introduction to the music and i ended up buying everything that was at the merch table and i've become a, a humongous fan ever since and and just thrilled to wow. uh, to get a chance to speak with you after that so I, I wish you all the success in the world with the album Stephen and uh, I know everyone's going to love it so uh, good luck on the tour and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon man thanks very much nice to speak to you man have a Thank good night alright man thanks thanks to Stephen for the interview we're going to close with a track off the new album this is the title track Hand Cannot Erase for more information and upcoming interviews please check thepogreport.com don't forget to check out our Facebook page and Twitter and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes
See?